for your help this evening as we look at this wonderful doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, Lord, we need your help to understand your Scripture. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand it in the right way. Lord, if we have to put aside something we used to think about Scripture in order to get it right, I pray that we would have the humility to do so. And Lord, I ask that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to have the understanding we need for this material. That not only would it encourage our souls and our faith, but also, Lord, that we would be able to share with more confidence even in your missional work that you've assigned to each of us to go and make disciples. Lord, help us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, so... The topic, as you probably have already figured out tonight, is the Bible's sufficiency. And so I think this is week six, and we're going to have four more sessions. And uh, I've been loving this topic. If you guys have known me for a little while or even a long time, probably my favorite topic is talking about Scripture. And so uh, this, this has been a fun study for me. And hopefully helping you as well. Um, So the question we start with, is the Bible enough? Is the Bible enough? So is scripture sufficient for us? And I'm going back again, and and you have this in your notes tonight, but also the more full uh, first section there from the Westminster Confession. It was in Lesson 1. And the reason that that's in there again is because there's just such a good way of putting it about our need to understand why the scriptures are so important. Um, And so we're looking now at section 6, which again should be in your notes. It says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. So depending on what tradition you grew up in, if you did grow up in the church, um, this may be very familiar. A lot of people grew up with the Westminster, Westminster Confession, and so you maybe even had to memorize this at some point or something like that. But what it is saying is that basically whatever God wanted us to know about himself, about his plan of salvation, about our faith, about how to live life, is either in Scripture clearly or we can at least deduce it through principles that Scripture tells us. And so as we go through this evening, uh, the point that we want to really come away with is that Scripture is sufficient to answer 
the questions we have about morals and ethics and anything else, how to live our life, how to worship him, all of those things, Scripture tells us all we need to know. Now, there is a danger when we decide we're going to put men's teaching over what Scripture says. I always remind people, hey, don't take my word for it. You know, go and search the Scriptures for yourself. See if what I'm teaching you is true. Because Scripture may be infallible, I'm not. I could get it wrong. I could pronounce Habakkuk wrong, and I could get other things wrong, right? So don't take my word for things. Always go back to Scripture and learn what it says. Isaiah 29, 13-14 talks about this need uh, to listen to God over men. It says, The Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will... Again, do wonderful things with his people, wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. I want to focus in right on the middle part there. It says, their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. That's something that we need to really watch for, because when you really examine most bad teachings, most bad doctrines, even heresies, cults, and those things, every time you'll come down to this, that there's some commandment by men that has been given that is not biblical. And it's in, in fact, they're putting their own words above God's. And then Mark 7, 8, it says, You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. What's that about, right? Jesus is talking. What was one of his common rebukes of the Pharisees? And it was that they had all these rules that actually were outside of Scripture. They would have said, well, we're just trying to help people out to do the Scripture, so we're giving these specific additions to it so that people can live right. But Jesus said, you're honoring the tradition uh, of men more than you're honoring God's own commandments. So we have a need to know Scripture, to understand it, and to obey it. And if we don't, we're at risk to believe false teachings. Okay? Second um, Thessalonians 2.2, there is a warning from Paul, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In that case, Paul's talking about a specific teaching that was out there. That was people, people were getting concerned. They were being told, hey, the, the second coming has already come, and you missed it, basically. You've been left behind, maybe, is what they were being told. And, uh, and Paul said, no, you need to stick with what is Scripture, not what these other people are teaching. So when we talk about Scripture being sufficient, it just means Scripture's enough. It's enough for all of what we need to know to live as Christians, uh, to mature as Christians, to grow, and so on. This Scripture keeps coming up in our series, and we'll see it again, 2 Timothy three fifteen to 17 How from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, and what can the sacred writings do for Timothy, Paul says, they are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
All Scripture is breathed out for, by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We're going to come back to this again in a little while, but that part where it says the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, that's talking about the fact that Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is sufficient to make the man of God complete. So that's all we need. We need Scripture. Here's a quote from Systematic Theology, um, and here, here's a, one definition of sufficiency of Scripture. I think this is in your notes as well. The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history and that it now contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. To be morally perfect in God's sight, then, what must we do in addition to what God commands us in Scripture? This is a quote from Systematic Theology. Um, so what do we need to do? Nothing. Nothing at all. If we simply keep the words of Scripture, we will be blameless, and we will be doing every good work that God expects of us. Now, unfortunately for now, we are not able to obey Scripture perfectly. James 3.2 2 says, We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Is anyone perfect, though? Is anyone bridling their tongue perfectly? No. Um, and again, in 1 John 1, it says, If we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So, we can't keep Scripture perfectly. We can't obey God perfectly. But that does not mean that Scripture is inadequate to help us live a godly life. Scripture contains all we need to be complete, to be equipped for every good work. Scripture is not inadequate. We are. We can find all the answers for all direction we need in all areas through systematic theology and through Christian ethics. And in case you want to know what those things are, I've got the definitions there for you as well. Systematic theology is an approach to the Bible that seeks to draw biblical teachings and themes into a self-consistent, coherent whole in conversation with the his history of Christian theological reflection and contemporary issues confronting the church. This is distinct from, yet related to, the approach of biblical theology which focuses on the development of theological themes within individual books of the Bible or across one or both testaments. The practice of biblical theology is often more closely intertwined with the practice of biblical studies, whereas systematic theology is usually viewed as a discipline that goes beyond the scope of biblical studies into church history, philosophy, and pastoral application. So what that's saying is that... Uh, systematic theology to a lot of Christians, that sounds like a word like, whoa, hold on here. That's for the pastor. That's for the, the Bible professor. That's for the one teaching at the, the university or something like that. But all of us, in a sense, need a systematic theology. We need to understand 
how God's word all works together, what it's teaching us, and that draws in a lot of information. It, it, it even draws sometimes from stuff outside of the Bible to, to verify what the Bible says. Um, and, uh, and so we see that that's an important thing. And it's not just that you, know, you leave that for the pastor to do, but you can develop that on your own. So that's what systematic theology is. And then ethics is, or in this case, Christian ethics, is the study of the ethical contents of the New Testament. Although the New Testament does not offer a systematic uh, code of ethics or a systematized code of ethics, morality is encoded within the covenantal framework of the worship of the one God through the example and sin-destroying work of Christ and the power and guidance provided by the Holy Spirit. So one, one thing that we note here is this is a place where we have a difference with the Roman Catholics. Okay? Uh, they would say that we, do not, we have not found all that God says to us about any particular subject until we have also listened to the official teaching of the church throughout its history. We would respond that although the history of the church may help us to understand what God says to us in the Bible, never in church history has God added to the teachings or commands of Scripture. Nowhere in church history outside of Scripture has God added anything that he requires us to believe or to do. If anything is added, as I started out with, that's outside of what God has told us, that's outside of Scripture, but Scripture is sufficient to equip us for every good work and to walk in ways to be blameless in God's sight. All right, next, the amount of Scripture given was sufficient at each stage in redemptive history. What does that mean? So that means, for example, at the time of Moses' death, the first five books of the Old Testament for for extra credit, does anyone know a, a term that's used? Pentateuch, right? So at the time of Moses' death, the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, were sufficient for God's people at that time. So at any given time in redemptive history, God provided what was needed. So Scripture needs nothing added to it by people. And what God has not told us in Scripture, we do not need to know. Okay? This is a good verse to remember and maybe even memorize, at least memorize the, the address, right? Deuteronomy 29, 29. Um, when someone says, well, what does God think about this? And it's not something you know is in the Bible. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. What is revealed to us? God's word. We have God's word revealed to us, so that's what we need. Beyond that, the secret things belong to God. And we are forbidden from adding to Scripture. Deuteronomy 4.2, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. And Deuteronomy 12.32, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Proverbs 35 and 6, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, 
and you be found a liar. And then finally, Revelation 22, 18 and 19, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. That's a pretty heavy penalty that's given to those who would add or take away from God's word. If scripture has not told us precisely how to think or act, we can conclude that God has not required us to think or act in a certain way. With regard to that question, even though general principles from scripture can guide us. Now, I'm not going to mention a specific political topic, but there's many that you could choose from where Christians differ. And the one Christian would say, well, I'm being guided by this biblical principle, and therefore I'm voting this way on this issue. And another say, but I'm coming from this biblical perspective, and I'm voting this way on this issue. How can those two Christians possibly get along? Right? Well, they can because we're one in Christ, and they can because where Scripture is not explicitly clear on things, uh, when we come to a disagreement on something like that, there's only one thing to remember. One of us or both of us are wrong, and we need to act in humility. Now, we do the best we can, right? We reason, we look at Scripture, we say, what does Scripture teach us about this issue? And then we let those general principles from Scripture guide us. But we won't always have an absolute perfect solution for everything because we live in a sinful world. We live with fallen human beings even in the church. And we can't always get all the decisions right. And so we do the best we can. And that gets back to using the systematic theology. Using the moral principles that the Bible sets forth. And then where we separate and say... I just can't agree with you on this topic. As long as it's not a specifically clear Bible topic, well, then we can say, well, that's okay. We believe on the main things. We're still brothers. We're still sisters in Christ. So uh, the next quote I had was from Systematic Theology again. As we go through life, frequent practice and searching Scripture for guidance will result in an increasing ability to find accurate, carefully formulated answers to our problems and questions. Lifelong growth in understanding Scripture will thus include growth in the skill of rightly understanding the Bible's teachings and applying them to specific questions. So if we're having trouble figuring out what the Bible would have us do in some area, sometimes that just comes with a long time of maturity. If we've gone through our entire Christian walk and never changed our opinion on anything, we may not be in the best spot. We may not be learners, right? Sometimes we have to step back and say, hey, my tradition I grew up in might have been wrong on that point. We have to be open. But we also have to continue to go back to the Word and say, what does it say? What does it command me to do? So... Uh, some other points on the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture reminds us Scripture and that we are to consider no other writings of equal value to Scripture. So this principle is violated by almost all cults and sects. And by the way, I want to give full credit towards due. Most of what I'm saying from now on 
is coming from Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, so I, I want to be clear that he's sourced on this. Um, but he's got so, such good stuff, I wanted to share it. But I want to read that again. The, the sufficiency of Scripture reminds us that we are to add nothing to Scripture and that we are to consider no other writings of equal value to Scripture. And this principle is, value, is, is violated by almost all the cults out there. Mormons, for example, they claim to believe the Bible, but they also claim divine authority for the Book of Mormon. Christian scientists claim to believe the Bible, but in practice they hold the book Science and Health with a Key to the Scriptures by Mary Baker Eddy on par with Scripture or above it in authority. Um, the Seventh-day Adventists, they have a, a prophet that they believe is equal to Scripture. And since these claims violate God's commands not to add to his words, we should not think that any additional words from God to us would be found in those writings. Even in Christian churches, a similar error is sometimes made when people go beyond what the Scripture says and assert with great confidence new ideas about God or heaven, basing their teachings not on Scripture but on their own speculation, or even on claimed experiences of dying and coming back to life. Those are very popular books, by the way. Some of the biggest bestsellers in the Christian, uh, I would say, Christian fiction have been these stories of people going to heaven and back. The next point I want to make is that scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture tells us that God does not require us to believe anything about himself or his redemptive work that's not found in Scripture. So among writings from the time of the early church are some collections of alleged sayings of Jesus that were not preserved in the Gospels. It's likely that at least some of the sayings of Jesus found in those writings are, are possibly accurate records of things Jesus said, but it's impossible for us to determine with any high degree of probability which sayings those are. But it does not really matter at all for our Christian lives if we never read any of those sayings because God has caused to be recorded in Scripture everything that we need to know about Jesus' words and deeds in order to trust them and obey him perfectly. Remember what John wrote towards the end of his gospel. I write this to basically make sure that you can believe that these things happen. And if all of them were recorded, not all the books in the world would contain all the things that he could have said about Jesus. But we don't need more than what the Bible says. Those collections of sayings uh, have maybe some limited value, um, maybe some research in the history of the church, and people can learn something about the history of the church from them, but they're no direct value for us whatsoever in learning what we should believe about the life and teachings of Christ or in formulating our doctrinal or ethic convictions. Next main point is that the sufficiency of Scripture shows us that no modern revelations from God are to be placed on a level equal to Scripture in authority. No modern revelations from God are equal to Scripture in authority. At various times throughout the history of the church, and particularly in the modern charismatic movement, people have claimed that God has given revelations through them for the benefit of the church, but we can evaluate those claims. We have to be careful not to allow those claims to be placed on par with the revelations that are in Scripture. 
We have to insist that God does not require us to believe anything about himself or his work in the world that is not contained in Scripture. I am not required to believe someone who walks up to me and says, Jason, I have a word from the Lord for you, and here's what it is. I'm not required to believe that. I'm required to believe Scripture. Does that make sense? There's a difference. And so we have to insist that God doesn't require us to obey that. And the Bible contains everything we need for God to tell, that God told us for trusting and obeying him perfectly. Um, and it should also be noted that whenever challenges to the sufficiency of Scripture have come in the form of other documents to be placed alongside Scripture, uh, the result has always been to de-emphasize the teachings of the Bible itself and to begin to teach some things that are contrary to Scripture. And that's a danger of which the church is constantly needing to be on the where for, okay? It's always a battle. It's been a battle since Paul was writing his letters. It's a battle today. The, the various bad teachings and heresies may have changed flavors a little bit, but the basics are always the same, okay? We have to be in God's word to know and be able to discern when we're taught something that's against it. Next point, with regard to living the the Christian life, sorry, with regard to living the Christian life, the sufficiency of Scripture reminds us that nothing is sin that is not forbidden by Scripture, either explicitly or implication. So to walk in the law of the Lord is blameless, Psalm 119.1. Therefore, we are not to add prohibitions to those already stated in Scripture. In other words, we don't get to say, I'm adding another sin to the list. This thing is a sin. It's because I don't like it. You know, I don't like onions, so I'm going to make putting onions on your sandwich a sin. Okay, that's, I don't get to do that. And that's a silly example, but there are actually examples out there. This is one of the things that Jesus uh, was focused on. For example, uh, Grudem gives for an individual to drink, drink coffee or Coca-Cola or to attend movie theaters or to eat meat offered to idols, um, but some specific teaching and, or some general um, principle of Scripture may be shown to prohibit those or other activities, um, but we must insist that these activities are not in themselves sinful and they are not in all situations prohibited by God for his people. And this is also an important principle because there is always the tendency among believers to begin to neglect the regular daily searching of Scripture for guidance and to begin lit to live a life by, uh, that's made up of written or unwritten rules, or even denominational traditions, or even local church traditions, um, concerning about what one does or does not do in the Christian life. Furthermore, whenever we add to the list of sins that are prohibited by Scripture itself, there will be harm to the church and to the lives of individual believers. The Holy Spirit will not empower obedience to rules that do not have God's approval from Scripture, nor will believers generally find delight in obedience to commands that do not accord with the laws of God written in their hearts. In some cases, Christians may repeatedly and earnestly plead with God for victory over supposed sins that are, in fact, no sins at all. Yet victory, no victory will be given For the attitude or action in question is not, in fact, a sin and is not displeasing to God. Great discouragement in prayer and frustration in the Christian life generally are the outcome of that type of thing. 
In other cases, continued or even increasing disobedience to these new sins will result, together with a false sense of guilt and a resulting alienation from God. Often there arises an increasingly uncompromising and legalistic insistence on these new rules on the part of those who do follow them, and genuine fellowship among believers in the church will fade away. Evangelism will be stifled. The silent proclamation of the gospel that comes from the lives of believers will at least seem to outsiders to include the additional requirement that one must fit this uniform pattern of life in order to become a member of the body of Christ. One clear example of such an addition to the commands of Scripture is found in the opposition of the Roman Catholic Church to artificial methods of birth control, a policy that finds no valid support in Scripture. Widespread disobedience, alienation, and false guilt have often been the result. Yet such is the propensity of human nature to make such rules that other examples can probably be found in the written or unwritten traditions of almost every denomination. Are we excluded? Maybe not. (laughs) We'll, We'll have to keep working on it. And then the next point is that the sufficiency of Scripture also tells us that nothing is required of us by God that is not commanded in Scripture either explicitly or by implication. Okay? Nothing is required of us by God that is not commanded in Scripture either explicitly or by implication. This reminds us that our focus of our search for God's will ought to be in Scripture rather than on seeking guidance through prayer for changed circumstances or altered feelings or direct guidance from the Holy Spirit apart from Scripture. It also means that if someone claims to have a message from God telling us what we ought to do, we need never assume that it is sin to disobey such a message unless it can be confirmed by the application of Scripture itself to that situation. So someone might tell you, Sister, I have a word from the Lord. You're not supposed to be driving that kind of car. You need to buy this. Well, unless you find that in Scripture, you don't have to obey that kind of thing. Okay, now that's, again, I'm giving a little silly examples. But it could, ha- it could be more like, uh, you know, um, Sister, I, I think that uh, the Lord is calling you to be the head of our women's ministry. Now we're starting to manipulate people a little bit, aren't we? And so we got to be careful with that. Unless you can find it directly in Scripture, whatever someone else says to you is not required of you to obey. Okay? Um, the discovery of this great truth could bring tremendous joy and peace to the lives of thousands of Christians who, spending countless hours seeking God's will outside of Scripture, are often uncertain about whether they have found it. Right? They don't know if they found God's will because all they do is spend their time searching everywhere except in Scripture. And, and they, they, don't, they can't understand why they can't figure out what they think God is telling them to do. They need to go to Scripture. In fact, many Christians today have very little confidence in their ability to discover God's will with any certain degree of certainty. Uh, so there's little striving to do God's will because who can know it? And little growth in holiness before God But the opposite ought to be true. Christians who are convinced of the sufficiency of Scripture should begin eagerly to seek and find God's will in Scripture. They should be eagerly and regularly growing in obedience to God, knowing great freedom and peace in the Christian life. 
Then they would be able to say with the psalmist, I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk at liberty because I have sought your precepts. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. And I don't have that in your notes. It's Psalm 119, 44 and 45 and verse 165. The sufficiency of Scripture reminds us that in our doctrinal and ethical teaching, we should emphasize what Scripture emphasizes and be content with what God has told us in Scripture. Are we always content that Scripture is telling us what we need? Or do we constantly try to find one more little thing outside of it? There are some subjects about which God has told us little or nothing in the Bible. Remember, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And the Bible, and that um, God has revealed to us in Scripture exactly what he deemed right for us. So we have to accept this and not think that Scripture is something less than it should be or begin to wish that God had given us more information about subjects on which there are very few scriptural references. You know, there will be situations where we are confronted with a particular problem that requires a great deal of attention far greater than the emphasis that it receives in the teaching of Scripture. But those situations should be relatively infrequent and should not be representative of the general course of our lives or ministries. It is characteristic of many cults that they emphasize obscure portions or teachings of Scripture. One thinks of the Mormon emphasis on baptism for the dead, a subject that is mentioned in only one verse in the Bible in a phrase whose exact meaning is apparently impossible now to determine with certainty. But a similar error was made by an entire generation of liberal New Testament scholars in the earlier part of the century who devoted most of their scholarly lives to a futile search for the sources beyond or behind our present gospel narratives or to a search for the so-called authentic sayings of Jesus. And unfortunately, a similar pattern has too often occurred among evangelicals within various denominations. The doctrinal matters that have divided many evangelical Protestant denominations from one another have almost uniformly been on matters on which the Bible places relatively little emphasis. And matters in which our conclusions must be drawn from skillful inference much more than from direct biblical statements. For example, abiding denominational differences have occurred or have been maintained over the proper form of church government or the exact nature of Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper or the exact sequence of the events surrounding Christ's return, the categories of persons who should be admitted to the Lord's Supper. These are all things that denominations argue over. The way in which God planned that the merits of Christ's death would be applied to believers and not applied to unbelievers. The proper subjects for baptism. The correct understanding of baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so forth. We should not say that these issues are unimportant. Nor should we say that scripture gives no solution to any of them. Indeed, with respect to many of them, a specific solution will be defended in subsequent chapters. And that will be part of our studies later. But all of these topics receive relatively little direct emphasis in Scripture. So it's ironic and tragic that denominational leaders will often give much of their lives to defending precisely the minor doctrinal points 
that make their denominations different from others. Have you seen that happen? It happens everywhere. And the question he finishes with, is such effort really motivated by a desire to bring unity of understanding to the church? Or might it stem in some measure from human pride, a desire to retain power over others, and an attempt at self-justification which is displeasing to God and ultimately unedifying to the church? And so I often joke about that when we we have discussions of like church polity or governance. How is our church supposed to be run? Or how are we supposed to, what should be the order of service on Sunday morning? And I say, well, if Paul had only written an order of service up for us, and then we could all agree, right? But Scripture doesn't explicitly tell us that. That doesn't mean Scripture doesn't teach us about how to worship God. It doesn't mean that it doesn't give us what our priorities should be. And so... With all of that said, I know that was really a lot, and I wanted to finish quickly, so I was kind of going fast there. But now we'll have some time for your discussion questions. So I think groups of four or five would be good, and uh, and we'll get there. So uh, thanks for listening, and now you get to discuss. And Brandon, if you advance that past, it'll stop recording for us.